A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. So... I haven't done this in a while. We'll start off with a couple of letters and feedback from listeners. I tell you, I never cease to be amazed by Jewish history sound by listeners. And telling you these the letters I get are not only knowledgeable and fantastic and add a lot, but they're also heartwarming and thank you all. It's really, really nice. That's also one of the reasons why I want to share them from time to time, and I think I've been neglected it a bit so I'll try to do it a little more often, is to show the other listeners what type of people we are and what, what, what we're all about at Jewish History Soundbites. Really a, a great group, a great Chabura together. So had some really great ones recently. Um, a couple of weeks ago or last week, I don't even remember, um, we had a baseball, Jews in Baseball. It was in honor of the World Series. Got a lot of great feedback for that one, so just read you one of them, one of many, gives the the feeling of it. Uh, I quote, great episode, I had the schuss to attend the Yankees-Astros playoff game on Thursday evening, Cholomite. The amount of Yidin at the seventh inning, Mayrav Minion, was huge, and I saw some pretty hush of a people in the Jewish world there. Also, every time... The screen showed fans, there were yarmulkes, end quote. So there you go, that's that's the cultural influence that we have and uh, and that we're part of in, in, in baseball. Also, several listeners are very, very, very powerful that they pointed out. I mentioned on that baseball uh, episode about how in the in a Detroit newspaper they wrote Lashana Taivatika Sevu for Hank Greenberg and I said that as far as I know that's the only time a major newspaper in America wrote Hebrew letters on their front headline. And a several alert um Jewish history soundbites uh, listeners pointed out that unfortunately a year ago uh there also was in the, after the Pittsburgh terrible massacre a very prominent Pittsburgh newspaper wrote the words Yiskadal v'yiskadah Shmei Rabbah from the Kaddish 
on the front page of the newspaper, the headline um, in uh, in uh, as is a memorial by the funeral of of the victims of that uh, terrorist attack, and that was also in Hebrew letters. Um, and another alert listener, actually, no relation to baseball, just someone sent it to me recently, so I thought I'd point it out because I found it funny. Another very alert listener pointed out something that I said about some other old, old episode. It's irrelevant what the topic was, but what I said was different than the way Hollywood portrayed it in a movie about that topic. It was about the Entebbe uh, uh, story, the attack on Entebbe. And um, so you want to know who's correct, me or Hollywood. It's obviously I am correct and not Hollywood. And in general, um, movie uh, has attempts, Hollywood attempts at trying to portray an accurate portrayal of, of uh, historical events are not, not the most uh, historically accurate or reliable. So I appreciate uh, you pointing that out as well. So today what we're going to go into is is a, a bit of a different topic, it's, being that it's it is the yard site of Romero Shapiro, so it would have been appropriate to do something about Romero Shapiro, but with the CM Hashas coming up, I was under the impression that you need written permission from either the Aguda or from the Dirshu organization to be able to say anything about Romero Shapiro, the Dafyaimi, so I don't want to take any risks or get into trouble, so I'm just going to wait till next year to talk about that, um, or another opportunity. So I'll talk about something very standard, um, about something that's very dear to me in guiding, when I guide in Europe, about the Tells Yeshiva. Now when I bring groups to Lithuania, we guide in tells, and in the story of tells is, is exciting and just bring you through the town a little bit. There's an old uh, wooden shul, one of the only places where there's a wooden structure of a shul in Eastern Europe. There's quite a few stone ones, brick ones, but very few wooden ones. There's the famous Telzer Lake. There's the Jewish cemetery where basically Bloch is buried. Outside the town, unfortunately, in the forest, there's the... Uh, mass grave where the Jews of Tells along with the yeshiva and the Russia yeshiva were all killed by the Nazis. But the main part of our visit is going to the yeshiva building, which is still there. It's this massive, huge red brick building, a very impressive and imposing structure, which was used under Soviet times for various different purposes. And today is an empty, I think even condemned uh, building, which never stops us from going in. And it's it's like a churban. It's like this, you know, this creepy inside. Things are falling apart. But that specifically makes it all the more exciting. It's not being used in anything else today. It's it's standing in a in a state of emptiness, of darkness, of dust. And we come in there and we try to make it alive. We we have uh, someone usually prepare something and we dance, we sing, and tell the story of tells. It's very very exciting. In any event, one of the main things that, that I that I like to talk about when we get to Tells is is a story. And the first time that I came to Tells, I wanted I was excited to tell the story, and I was disappointed that I wasn't able to in the way, in the fashion that I had planned, which I'll explain in a second. Well, there's a story that Rav Matcha Gifter, who is one of the most famous and uh, prime 
students of Tells in the interwar era. He married into the family. He came from the United States to study in Tells. He was there for, I think, about eight years, if I'm not mistaken. And a very, very lived Tells. He was the Rashiv in Tells in Cleveland afterwards. And he said many, many, many stories about the yeshiva. He actually wrote a fantastic article about the yeshiva. It was the first ever article written on the history of, of the yeshiva. And many have been written since then, but he, he was the first one. One of the stories that he would say was that the wooden doors at the entrance of the building of Tel's yeshiva, if you touch the doors, you put your hand on the door to open the door to come in, you already had a uplift in Yeras Shemayim, in the fear of God. You already, you already had a Hisairus, you already were inspired to do more, just by putting your hand, that's the inspiration that the building had, that was the, that was how powerful the experience was of going, and the first time I was, you know, I always say the story when I go, the first time I was going to go, I was excited to tell the story of standing in front of those doors, and lo and behold, we arrive at the, uh, at the Tel Yeshiva building, the building is there, the bricks are there, but the wooden doors are not. And I was so disappointed, and they're actually not there. And subsequently, I found out that a descendant of one of the Tel's Rashi Yeshiva, who considers himself a Telzer for some reason, and other than the fact of his last name, there's really no connection between him and Tel's, he decided to jack the doors of the Tel's Yeshiva building and bring them to Eretz Yisrael where he installed them, he repainted them in a hideous color, and he installed them as the doors of the Arun Kodesh in a kailal that he was in charge of. And, and that's where the memory of the Tel's doors exists till this very day. So here, we don't have the doors in Tel's. So I went down to this kailal in, in Kiryat Sefer in, in Eretz Yisrael, and I took pictures of the doors. I went specifically made this trip to see the Telzer doors. And I had someone take pictures of me in front of it. And now I take the pictures with me when I go to Tells. Uh, um, and I speak about the doors. At least we have a picture of the doors. I was standing by the building. So that's, that's the guiding intel. We really make it alive. It's a, one of the most exciting visits that we have. And it's really an amazing story um, about the yeshiva. So I want to touch on a little bit the early years of the yeshiva today. If I wanted to speak about the history of the Tel Yeshiva, we'd probably have to have a series. Maybe we will one day. I'm sure, part two maybe one day, or part three. Here, just a little bit, a little bit of a taste of the early years. You know, the One of the great books, one of the greatest books about the history of Litvish, Lithuanian yeshivas is by uh, Professor Shol Stempfer, who wrote a book, I think it was I believe it is, It is as far as I know, it's translated into English. Also, I read it in the original Hebrew, so I don't remember the exact title, but I think it's the Lithuanian yeshivas in the 19th century or something along those lines. And he has a whole section on tells, which, which uh, I draw a lot from and from other sources as well. And he explains there about how there was a lot of innovation within the yeshivas during the 19th century, to meet the challenges of modern times, the Haskala, the movements, well, the everything that was going on in the Russian Empire at that time. And there was, you know, each yeshiva offered something new as an approach, even if they weren't offering it as an answer to the modern times, consciously, but it ended up being so. 
And in the case of Tells, you know, and you mentioned Slavatka was Musser, and, and Lida of Rav Reines was secular studies, and Valajan to a certain extent, it was the Derech Halimur, the new style of study, of learning that Reb Chaim Brisker brought. And in Tells, it was the structural changes, the order, the organization of the yeshiva. And in fact, Tells was started, at least according to some sources, specifically to combat the modern times, to, to combat modernity or the new winds that were blowing through the Russian Empire, through Lita at that time. And it's interesting to note that one of the greatest and most famous of all the Maskilim in the history of the Haskalah movement spent quite a f- bit of time, quite a few years, in Tells, writing in Tells, and that is the famous poet and writer Yehuda Leib Gordon, Yalag, you know, many times if you'll say, how is the name Gordon associated with Tells? Right away everyone's going to say, who we're going to speak about very soon, Reblazer Gordon, the legendary Rosh Hashiva of Tells. But here, there's someone who preceded him who was also a Gordon. Yalag, Yehuda Leib Gordon. And um, he spent, uh, and he had an influence on the town. So a couple of years after he left, or right around that time actually, it's not clear exactly which year it began. There was three young Yungalite, three young married Tamidi Chachamim, who begin a yeshiva. And those three are Reb Meir Atlas, Reb Tzvi Yaakov Oppenheim, and Reb Zalman Abel, 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 depends how you pronounce it. Reb Meir Atlas later became famous as the Shavlerov, the Rav in Shavl, another larger town in, in Lita. Um, he was the father-in-law of Rabbi Chanan Wasserman. He was also the father-in-law of Rabbi Chaim Weiser Grzynski in his second marriage. And, um, excuse me, and these three start tells together. It remains a small, somewhat local yeshiva. Sometime in the 1870s, that's the time we're talking about. It's not clear exactly which year. Uh, in 1882, Rabbi Oppenheim leaves. He gets another position somewhere else. Um, and... And Reblazer Gordon becomes the rabbi of the town of Tells, and he's encouraged to take charge of the yeshiva as well, even though the yeshiva was not directly owned, controlled, or affiliated with the town. It was modeled on the Valajan model, where the, the educational institution, the yeshiva, was independent of the kehila, of the communal structure, which is a whole story when we examine Valajan, hopefully, eventually, We'll have a whole series on Valajan to understand the contribution that Valajan made to the yeshiva world. That's also a story in itself. So, Reblazer Gordon arrives, and that really is the beginning of the growth and the, the novelty of Tells. He himself was an amazing person, powerhouse of energy. He had a, almost like an electric energy about him. He was a dynamic individual. He learned in the Zaretsha Yeshiva in Vilna. Following that, he moved to Kovna, where he studied under Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in the Naviyezer Kloiz, which is also a famous place in, in, uh, in Kovna at the time. And um, he becomes part of the Kovna scene. He's actually very closely affiliated with the, the noted uh, or famous uh, world-renowned Kovna Askin um, Yaakov Lifshitz, the secretary of the Kovna Rav, Rebitzik Ochana Specter. In fact, 
his namesake, his great-grandson and namesake, Rabbi Yaakov Lifshitz of Muncie, just passed away this week. So he was actually in the news, Yaakov Lifshitz. But Rabbi but, but Lazer Gordon was affiliated, he called it the, the Maskilim, who did not like Yaakov Lifshitz and his office and his gang. They called it the Lishka Hashchaira, the black office, for their writings and the polemics that they had, the Maskilim, uh, together against uh, Yaakov Lifshitz and his people. So Blazer Gordon was one of those people. Um, but he now, then he becomes the Robin Kelm. He, he, he made his rounds, Blazer Gordon. Um, so after he had finished being the Robin Kelm and returned to Slabatka for a short amount of time, he eventually makes it to become the Rav and now the Rosh Hashiva of Tells. So he becomes, he comes there and the, these three, these, the three founders of the Yeshiva eventually leave. Rameir Atlas moves on to greener pastures. Rav Zaman Elbel dies quite young. He's actually a nephew of Rablazer Gordon. And Rablazer Gordon brings in his son-in-law, Rabbi Yisaf Bloch, to become Rabbi in the Yeshiva, and his nephew by marriage, Rabbi Shimon Shkop. And he brings all in his, his innovations into the Yeshiva structure. He implements tests, monthly tests, that they should be tested on the material that they know. He divides it into classes, levels, not just classes, that there's levels, and you move up from one shear to the next. It's the first yeshiva to implement such an organized structure of levels of learning, of ages, of moving up to the next shear, which are accepted in every pretty much every yeshiva till today. And the first place to have that was tells. In general, the organization there was pretty pretty uh, rigid. There was also a formal acceptance procedure, which also did not exist in other yeshivas. A very formal acceptance procedure. He sends out a kol koire, a special letter that exists till today, that's a very important document. Blazer Gordon in 1894 explains to the world what his goals are with this yeshiva. And he has letters of recommendation from a Khan inspector and other great rabbis of his day. This is a very, very important document in the history of the yeshiva to explain what in the eyes of Blazer Gordon and the rabbis who were giving their haskama to the yeshiva, how they saw tells at that time. So there's a lot to say about all this, the early years and the learning and the structure and yeshiva life and the schedule and the student organization, a very, very sophisticated inner student organization and student life, and the Talmudim of the yeshiva, we'll have to leave that for another time. But what I want to speak about in our remaining time is what made, one of the things that made Tells very unique is the amount of uh, re- revolts or fights or uh, rebellious moments that took place in the yeshiva, which there were plenty of those in many Latvish yeshivas. And in Valazhin and Slabatka was quite renowned for different revolts at different times. It was more than other yeshivas, like Mir or Radin, or much less, if, if some even non-existent. So some had more, some had less, but no one had as many as Tells and with that intensity. So what was the reason for all this revolting? It was be, for, mainly for two reasons. Either the implementation of Musr into the yeshiva, bringing the Musr movement into the yeshiva, or different appointments of of Magide Shir, of Rebbeim, of people to, 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 who were appointed to positions in the yeshiva, sometimes a combination of both, actually. So we'll start from the first fight, from the first uh, 
revolt. In 1885, above different protests, Rabbi Yosef Lay Bloch convinces his father-in-law to allow and bringing a limited amount of Musr into the yeshiva. A little bit of a Musr Seder, it was optional, it wasn't mandatory, especially not for for the younger students. Tells was not a Musr Yeshiva, was not part of the Musr movement. The whole idea of what the Musr movement was and what the opposition to the Musr movement was will also have to leave for another time. So we're really bringing up a lot of other topics uh, in this discussion of Tells, which we'll have to leave for another time. But in any event, the the um, the real that's that's a minor issue event. What really when it really explodes is in 1897, 12 years later. In order to make Musr stronger in the yeshiva, and there's different versions as to why exactly at this juncture of the yeshiva's history they decided to. Perhaps it was because of the, there was a lot of haskalah in the yeshiva, which there was a lot of a lot of uh, literature, a lot of other things that were going on there. So they tried to have a chizuk to try to strengthen the Musr in the yeshiva, and they bring in a very prominent Musr mashkiach, Rebleib Chasman legendary Mashkiach later in Slabatka and Hebron. And he makes a lot of very, very strong rules. He really makes Musr a very uh, important component of the yeshiva life. Everyone has to learn Musr. There's a Musr Chabura in his house. There's no talking and learning during davening, which is an unheard of rule at that time and tells. And if anyone breaks any of these new rules, then he simply... He finds them. The yeshiva gave out money to pay for their food and for their lodging. And here they would be fined. They would have deducted from their funding. And this would would put them in financial trouble. So he really had a powerful weapon on them. And what the response of this, the yeshiva was, the yeshiva bacharim, the talmidim of the yeshiva, was to go on strike. And they, it was a quite a violent strike and and some of the organizers were thrown out. But the, uh, like with all employers and striking workers, Blazer Gordon eventually came to terms with the strikers. And so, even though some of the organizers were thrown out, but um, Rebleib Chasman's influence declines in the issue. Eventually he leaves completely in 1902, a couple of years later. Rebesif Lay Bloch leaves in 1902, and Rav Shimon Shkup leaves in 1903. So the entire staff of the yeshiva, besides for the Rosh Shiva himself, Rav Lazer Gordon, changes within a year. The whole anti-Muster revolt left a bad taste. Uh, it simmers for a while. Eventually, Rav Chaim Rabinovich, Rav Chaim Telzer, becomes the main rebbe in the yeshiva. He's hired He's actually an anti-Muster. Um, and... They think that the yeshiva is going to come to a period of calm, but that's the opposite of what happened. There's another son-in-law of Reblazer Gordon who is appointed to a position in the yeshiva, and that's Reb Yitzchak Isaac Hershevitz. And the the students don't like him for all kinds of reasons, and they decide that they don't want him to become a rebbe in the yeshiva. So they protest and they try to get him out. And there's this is in 1905 which is an important date because the revolt at this point, which was the pretty much the most violent revolt, is heavily influenced by the revolt of the, that's gone, the revolution, the 1905 revolution that's going on in Russia. So the outside influence of the street definitely influences how 
the response is of the students within the yeshiva. Um, they had this revolt, and these types of revolts were called hupkas. Don't ask me what that means. That they would disturb the seder in the yeshiva during a night seder. The, da- the furniture in the yeshiva was damaged. He, this Rabbi Isaac Hershovitz is forced out of the yeshiva. The revolt is 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 somewhat successful. The revolt is over, but Rabbi Gordon is fuming, and many of the revolters are kicked out of the yeshiva. So to bring Seder back to the yeshiva after the revolt is another attempt to bring in Musser. Shortly after this revolt, and a new mashgiach Rabbi Luft is brought in, and along with him is between 30 and 40 older students, older Talmidim and top students from the Slabatka Yeshiva, which was a real Musr Yeshiva. They're imported to bring Musr and the Musr movement in a powerful way to bring finally some order to tells. That move to bring in outsiders, to bring in Musr outsiders into the great Yeshiva of tells the students felt that that was unforgivable. The Talmidim the Yeshiva they said, that's unforgivable, we're going to bring outsiders in, you're going to bring Slabatkas in. What? These older guys, they're going to take over Tells. This is an invasion. There's an open revolt against that. And this revolt also, again, a lot of violence, the hupkas, which is what it's called, and, and, and a lot of noise. And this ultimately led the yeshiva to be shut down completely. It's the beginning of 1906, and the yeshiva is shut down for half a year. And the two leaders of the revolt, I mentioned this in the Yardzeit episode on the Panavizhirov, the base of Shleimika Hanuman, then known as Yosha Kula, who came from the town of Kul, and Avram Hertzfeld, who eventually became a, left the religion and became a, a leader in the Knesset and the, the Kibbutz movement. So these are the two leaders of the revolt, and they run a, a yeshiva for the rebels. It's a clan, sort of like a clandestine yeshiva in the town, using one of the shuls in the town. And Reblazer Gordon meets with the revolters. So he meets with Avram Hertzfeld and the, the future Panavizharav, the uh, Yashakul, the base of Hanuman. And they start discussing how to bring the yeshiva back. This is our demands. This is what we want. We, we, we shut down the yeshiva. The yeshiva closed. There was no longer any tells yeshiva. In the middle of the discussion, uh, the, Panav- the future Panavizharav says to Blazer Gordon, your Talmidim are starving and learning Torah. And Blazer Gordon breaks down and he gives them 52 rubles. And this says a lot about Blazer Gordon, the love that he has for his Talmidim, the love that he has for Torah. Even these people, they destroyed his yeshiva, they revolted, they rebelled. He gives them money because they're learning Torah and they're starving. It's an unbelievable story. This is also the Panavizharov's first foray into fundraising. Um, so at the end of this revolt, the yeshiva is reopened after a half a year, and the Mashkiach and the Slabotka guys leave. Um, now a lot of the revolters left, and the Russian Revolution is over. So in the final attempt to bring in Musser, which was ultimately successful, there's less of a revolt. Things had calmed down. And the next year, Blazer Gordon brings in Shmuel Fundiler, a great Talmud of Kelm, a great Bal Musser. He was later a Rav in Ritava, a Litvish town in, in western 
Lithuania. He was killed by the Nazis, and he, also with a group of Musser uh, Bacharim. They bring him to the Shiva. This time it did work. Um, the combination of factors why it worked this time, a lot of the revolters had left. There's less outside influence because the 1905 Russian Revolution was over. There's also the personality of Reb Shemul from Dealer. It was a very aristocratic personality. And uh, that's, and ultimately, Musser was brought into the yeshiva. The real end to the story, when everything calmed down, is when her blazer Gordon eventually died in exile in London, which I spoke about also on another podcast. And her basically Bloch comes back to the yeshiva and he takes over, tells you also. Uh, um, parted ways with the Shmuel von Dealer who left and became the Rav Ritava. So, end off with a story that really describes what this fire was in the Tells Talmidim, that they were always standing up for what they believed was what they wanted, and their way is that one time they, the Talmidim were discussing with their Blazer Gordon. He said, what do you mean? In Slabatka, this is how things go also. It's not just in Tells. And Blazer Gordon said, how can you compare us to Slabatka? There was always a rivalry between Slabatka and Tells, especially after Valazhin closed, about who was the better yeshiva, who replaced Valazhin. And Blazer Gordon says, how can you compare us to Slabatka? If Rabnata Hirsch, that's how the altar of Slabatka was known as Rabnata Hirsch, if Rabnata Hirsch says jump, they would jump. Here in Tells, Every single Bachar has his own daya, has his own opinion, has his own way. And he was proud of that. He was proud of the fact that he cultivated this idea, this education, uh, this independence within his Bachar, even though sometimes the results were disastrous. So that's a little bit about Tells, hopefully more for a future time. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours and trips to these areas and more. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.